Welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Frederick Lee. Uh, Frederick Lee, better known as Flea, uh, Chief Security Officer at Gusto. Can you just start off right there? What is Gusto? What do you guys do? Uh, you know, how big is your security team there? Give me a little bit of your background. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gusto is a people platform solution. So we're a cloud-based uh, HR and payroll company. Um, and we focus primarily on helping small and medium-sized businesses provide all the resources, tools, um, and education that their employees need to have a successful work life. We think that if we can help employees be successful at companies, that we overall we can actually help the company be successful. So that's, you know, Gusto helping companies, like I said, with things like payroll, but also things like benefits, uh, things like healthcare, um, providing 401k, helping people, you know, save for their future with 529s. Um, we even provide the ability for employees to have control over when they get paid via our product, Gusto Cash Out. Um, and we are, you know, uh, a company that's actually based here in San Francisco, but we also have offices in Denver and New York. And, and obviously due to COVID, we have a lot of remote offices now. What, what has, did you have to uh, change and modify things uh, significantly because of COVID from February to now? Has, I mean, a lot of folks have been forced into what we call this digital transformation at a high level, we call this digital transformation. Was that a hiccup for you or, or were you in a good place where it wasn't that much of a strain on resources, budgets, planning and all that stuff? Yeah, so Gusto was already in a good place. As, as I mentioned, um, you know, because we have what we call three home bases, and what we mean by that is like, yeah, like if you go to a Gusto office, you can expect to find engineers in Denver, just like you'll find them in San Francisco and you'll find engineers and, you know, salespeople, HR, et cetera, in our New York office and same way you'd find them here in San Francisco. So because of that philosophy, we've always had a lot of remote capability and we've always leaned into the ability to work in various different locations. So we were already on that journey. There weren't any massive stretches that, that Gusto had to do due to COVID. Um, but obviously, yeah, there was a lot of things that we had to think about to, you know, kind of double check. Um, you know, so for example, Gusto was already going down the path of zero trust slash beyond corp. And because of that, we felt really, really comfortable with all of our employees working from home, you know, recognizing that they were gonna be working on networks that we didn't directly control, but because of the IT and security infrastructure that we already had in place, we had a lot of trust that we could do that in a secure way while also allowing our employees to still remain productive. That's fantastic. So you didn't have uh, you didn't have many, many hiccups along moving towards a zero trust model and having to deal with VPN cloggage or any of that stuff. No, we didn't have any of, the, any of those hiccups. Uh, you know, we, uh, the IT team has done a really, really good job of kind of designing Gusto in this manner of what we kind of call secure coffee shops, um, meaning that we had always assumed that uh, we wanted to make sure that our general philosophy is that to treat networks as untrusted, including our, our own network. Um, and so because of that, we had a lot of things already in place, including, you know, a lot of capacity for VPN. So there wasn't an issue kind of like we maybe we've seen at a traditional company that the example I always like to use is a traditional company during a snow day where you get to see employees uh, fight to, to get uh, access to VPN. Um, that, that wasn't an issue for Gusto though. When you say traditional company, I, I think in my head, old foggy, stodgy, old <laughs> enterprise company, not startup, not nimble. Is it possible for a company uh, to move from that, what you call old company to uh, a zero trust model? And what does that, tra is that transformation something that's so intimidating that, 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 
um, you know, folks stray away from it? Or is that something that's just naturally happening as we speak? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I do believe that there is fear in some of the more traditional companies. And, and you know, I recognize that the traditional companies are built in the way they are because probably some legacy requirements that required them, literally, you know, forced them into it. And also recognizing that technology has shifted since some of these companies were created. Um, but one of the big technology shifts that I believe is helping a lot of companies move towards Beyond Core and Zero Trust is the fact that more and more of the applications that people use are cloud-based slash SaaS companies. You know, so like if somebody is using Gusto, they don't have to download and install Gusto. They go to their web browser and, and they, you know, or onto their phone and, and they use Gusto from there. And I think that shift is making it easier for companies to start thinking about zero trust, partially because a lot of them are already doing similar things. Um, and there are a lot of good products and in particular products for some of the, the larger vendors now that's making it much easier for people to kind of kickstart their, their zero trust journey. So, you know, if you use some of the like single sign-on um, products or maybe some of the more advanced uh, networking gear, a lot of them actually have things like posture checks or, or health checks for devices when they connect. Um, they allow us to do some, some kind of high level remote attestation to really get an understanding of the device that's connecting to the network is secure enough to get access to a particular resource. So I think some of this is actually coming naturally um, for zero trust in general. And my suspicion is that it's the adoption curve for zero trust is gonna look a lot like the adoption curve for cloud in general, because there are a lot of similarities. Do you think it's um? Do you think it's easier to build a security team from scratch versus uh, 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 adopting one and trying to mold it into a mature security program? I think it's easier to start one from scratch, and part of the reason I believe it's easier to start it from scratch is that you really can right size your security team, and you can start the security team focusing on the primary core business problems um, if you're starting it from scratch. Uh, obviously, like there's all kinds of models for a good successful security team. I actually did a DEF CON talk uh, about trying to get rid of dogma with, with regards to how people practice security, because it really is about making sure that your security team can be flexible and responsive to the business needs um, of your particular business. So the things that we do here at Gusto look different than the things that occur at Bank of America, for example. And because of that, the security team at Gusto should be different than the security team at Bank of America. There are things that, that I believe are consistent across all good and successful security teams. So for example, um, successful security teams really do try to focus on right-sizing risk and really understanding the risk of the business. And when they look at that, also being pragmatic regarding that risk. And, and what that means is recognizing there are some risks that the business just needs to take. Um, and there are some risks where the security team really, really needs to be involved in helping actually, you know, make that risk visible and also helping manage that risk. Um, some companies are heavily engineering focused. And I believe in those companies, they do well by having a very, very engineering heavy security team. There are some other companies that, that are much more just process focused. Um, especially in a really, really large uh, financial institution, for example, where there's a lot more process. Um, the people that you hire or want to hire may look different than the kind of people that you can hire at, at a you know more tech-focused slash Silicon Valley-style company. Interesting. And I noticed you mentioned Bank of America there a few times. You actually did a stint there um, 
uh, your colleague, an ex-colleague of yours, Sunil Yu, who is a, 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 I'm a big fan of some of his work. He's built the cyber defense matrix and has been out evangelizing the use of the cyber defense matrix. Is that something that a lot of um, active CISOs are actively using to de- de- design their program and determine, you know, which products uh, slot in where, which companies slot in where, how much am I going to tackle with technology versus people versus process? Is that something on your radar at all? Um, that's something on my radar. I, I can't speak for my peers because I think all, all of them, you know, try to, like I said, kind of right size what's exactly, you know, perfect for their company. Um, but I, I do believe in these kind of frameworks, partially because there's no security person that has every single answer. Um, the other thing is I, I do believe in, uh, to some extent, you know, standing on the shoulders of others. And if the work has already been done, there's a lot of good work. And I think that we as a security community benefit from leveraging some of these frameworks and some of these other products, in particular, the ones that have actually been built by security practitioners. Um, I believe there's a lot of value in us actually adopting those. I know you mentioned Bank of America, but you have a really, really interesting history. First of all, you're an, an anomaly. Is that right? Am I saying it right? An anomaly. Um, you're you're a minority. You're a black guy in a leadership role in cybersecurity, which is it's you stand out. Uh, is has that been something that uh, uh, you wear on your shoulder uh, uh, subconsciously, um, or are, are you just? Um, I don't know how to ask the question, but is that something that's constantly in your mind as you enter boardrooms and peer conversations? Um, it, you know, it's not. Uh, like it's not the first thing on my mind, but it, it definitely is on my mind. And, and and actually, I love talking about this topic. And part of the reason why I love talking about this topic is that I, I do believe that I have a, a an obligation to also be visible as, as a black security leader. And part of that is I, I owe a huge you know debt to people like John Lee who helped inspire me to get into security. And by being able to actually see a you know a young black wait a second you can't just you can't just skim over just john lee there's a lot of the kids (laughs) listening to this podcast who have no idea who john lee is that's just a name it sounds like a a a name of some martial artist so let's talk about john lee for a second because this was your introduction to technology and computering right yes that 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 is correct so so let me spend a second and explain who john lee is uh, and then and and then maybe it'll put into context for the listeners why he was so relevant in your early life, right? Oh yeah. yeah John yeah. Lee was in the in the early 1990s there was a famous famous it was very public hacker wars uh, and there were some rival hacker groups Legion of Doom versus MOD Masters of Deception. And John Lee was a young black kid in Brooklyn who got caught up in that kind of uh, freak war back in the day. They would just, you know, they would use sound codes to break into, uh, was it MCI or AT&T networks at the time, to do free long distance calling. It was a lot of prank type things, but it was showing off the ability to break into certain interesting places. And John Lee ended up getting caught up in that, did a stint in prison and so on. But he was a, he was a real pioneer and an influence to a lot of kids because back then and and through time uh, computers hacking these kinds of security stories were limited to folks who did not look like John Lee or did not have his background so he he became kind of like a little bit of a cult figure in hacker circles so can you pick up the story here and how how did he become such an influence in your life oh and you hit the nail on the head um i i would say um 
you know, he definitely is a role model because, you know, he not only obviously, you know, he, he definitely had his interactions with the law, but he was a revolutionary and, and he was, you, you know, really think so black. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he, you know, he was proudly black, proudly smart, um, proudly against a lot of the stereotypes. I think that, that people had of, of black people and in particular when it came to black people and technology. So for me, I, I was, uh, you know, fairly young at, at the time. Um, and, you know, I remember seeing him in a magazine and I was like, wow, that was like the first, at least for me, that, that was the first time I saw a real black person dealing with technology. So and, wait a second, how, 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 what age group are you? Are you 15, 16, high school, college years? Oh, this must have been, yeah, it was definitely teens. Like I, um, I'm, I'm a little bit old myself. So I can't and you grew up in the South, right? You're, you're a black kid in the South, Mississippi, right? Yeah, yeah. So th this is me growing up in like, you know, you know, effectively rural Mississippi. I, I didn't have a computer at home, didn't have access to computers. Your dad um, wasn't so, in a, your dad wasn't an engineer and there wasn't in a yep. computer sitting around the house at all times for you. No, 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 there was not. And so when we did get access, it was in the form of, you know, maybe my mom taking us to the public library or maybe we would occasionally like, you know, see a computer at school. Um, and, and, you know, we didn't grow up with tons of money or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, especially back then, you think about the, the 80s and the 90s, computers are extremely expensive. Um, and, you know, my parents wanted to make sure we had access to as many things as possible. But that, that was definitely a financial stretch for us to have had a computer at home. And uh, this story sounds that. exactly like John Lee's story. He was literally yes. his mom. His mom was leaving him in the library because she didn't have uh, uh, child care for him. And he would go to the library and poke around computers. And that's how he ended up like that. That triggered his thing. It's just so fascinating and amazing to me. Oh, no, no, it, it is interesting because the more I learn about John, the more I learn about similarities that, that, that we have. Um, I think one difference, though, is obviously like, you know, my parents are, are really, really, really big on education. So it wasn't that we were going to the library to like, hey, I'm just going to drop the kids off. It was more like, yeah, we were required to go to the library once a week uh, and we needed to get a book and bring that home, uh, read the book and then return it the next week. Um, but, you know, t other things that I think my parents wanted to do to help supplement for the fact that we didn't have some of these same traditional access was like, you know, so for example, my dad would take us to the bookstore um, just to look and read through magazines and things like that. So like I, di I didn't have um, a computer at home to download things from FRAC or things like, you know, things like that. But I could go and maybe find a copy of 2600 and see some of the same articles or see some of these same things going on, um, getting some of that same interest. And then when I finally did get access to computers, start being actually to connect with some of these people and, and also start to follow along in some of those footsteps. And, and in particular, follow along in those footsteps of positive curiosity. Um, and what I mean by, by positive curiosity is a lot of things we think about when we think of, you know, you know, um, LOD and MOD, et cetera. It's like, yeah, it, it was teens being curious. And, you know, do, do teens always make the, the smart choice? Well, no, not, not all the time. But some of the things that they explored and found um, were the kind of things that you want in young engineers. You want them to experiment. You want them to take things apart. You want them to be curious and to find ways that uh, systems were not intended to be used because you can find those unintentional uses, you can find potential opportunity. And that opportunity could be like, hey, cl closing down those potential uses, closing up some holes in, uh, you know, in telcos, et cetera. Or it could be maybe expanding on that technology and, and building something new. So you know, having a role model such as John Lee was extremely important to me. And so I, I do feel a, a, 
an obligation at a minimum to pay him back um, and ideally make the path for other black CISOs much, much easier. And, and I'm really excited because it turns out there's actually a lot more black CISOs now um, than even there were like five years. And not ago. only CISOs, not only CISOs, even security directors, engineering leaders, right. marketing leaders, there's a lot more. The representation is better. It's still, it's still far, far, far away from being what it should be. Oh, you yeah. go to RSA and you go over to the W and you try to get a seat in one of those business meetings and nobody look like me and you. So, I mean. Yes, <laughs> that, 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 that is slowly changing, but it was an interesting question that, that you asked, like, yeah, how much of that is present in my mind? Um, like I said, it is partially in the back of my mind. Like uh, I'm proudly black. I, to, you know, like I wake up in the morning and then I'm, I'm thankful for that. I go to sleep and I'm still thankful for that. So it's definitely nothing I would ever want to get rid of. And, and I don't want anybody though to doubt my skill set because of that. Um, and by me being uh, prominent or at least present as a you know black engineer, as a black security practitioner, as a black CISO, I hope that I make that path easier for other people. And even more so, I at least want to let people know that this is actually possible. So I, I belong to an organization called uh, Dev Color. It's an organization for uh, for uh, you know African American slash black uh, software engineers. And one of the things I think is so unique and interesting about these kinds of groups is the power of that network, but also the power of that visibility, because it's useful. If you can see it, you can be it. And if there's a young, you know, black boy or black girl that's interested in, in getting into cybersecurity, they actually have role models they can actually look up to, that they can actually see um, and see them in, in a positive light. And so I always, always carry that with me as a very, very willing obligation that I'm excited to do. And, and I want, you know, I love doing even more of it. So, I, 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 I'm a big fan of that stuff and I love it. You, when, did you, when did you know that security was going to be your calling? You decided you, you did computer engineering in college, right? Did uh, you, yes, that, that, that's correct. Did you know um, right there and then you wanted to specialize in security? Uh, no, because uh, you, you have to remember, you like, uh, you know, I went to college in the '90s, and so back in the '90s, if you were a hacker, that was a a hobby, right? Um, and, and you know, there weren't really a readily available or readily obvious um, career pathway job. in security. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. And so like, you know, like if you went into the military or the government, yes, that, that's definitely a path towards being security. Um, but there weren't like a lot of like prominent security type roles. And, and it didn't look like some of the things that I thought I was going into. Like I thought that at this point in my life, I'd be working on electric vehicles and autonomous flight and things like that. You did um, mechanical security, engineering, right? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, electrical and computer engineering. Yeah. Right, that, what, what was the goal then? I mean, you're in college, there's no security path. You, you, you really thought you'd be working on drones and, and, and self-driving cars? Like that was the, the dream and the passion then? That was the dream and the passion, um, but my, my passion was also still security, but security felt like it was just something that would have to continue being a hobby. And, and, and the, you know, interestingly enough, it was always something that I felt like I couldn't escape though. Uh, I, I was actually talking to John Lee on the phone and we were reminiscing about some of the things you learn early on as, as, a, as a security practitioner or somebody who's tinkering with computers. There's kind of like this, this itch and this instinct of trying to actually find the gaps that's just difficult to get away from. So even when I was in college, those were still things that I was aware of and also things that I still practice. Um, but it was maybe sometimes in the role of maybe like a job. So for example, you know, one of my earlier college jobs was being a system administrator and then a programmer for um, 
the Center for Analysis and, and Prediction of Storms. Uh, and so as somebody who is still working with computers, I still feel like, oh, hey, you know what? Remember those things I used to do as a kid uh, to attack other people? I should probably start protecting against those and I should you know, make sure that my systems are a little bit more secure. Uh, and so it was just kind of like part of the job and it was part of a job I still uh, was really, really attracted towards. But you know, after going through a couple of, you know, after I finally graduated and joining a couple of other software companies, it just became a recurring theme of like, hey, here's a new product that we're building. Um, oh, wow, is there a way that somebody could potentially abuse this? Oh, well, hey, you know, Flea, do you think you could actually fix this or maybe lock this down? So um, security kept in college. Security kept place. leaking in. Security kept leaking into all aspects of what you were doing, even if it was just software development. Yes, exactly. I, I think it's one of those things that once you have seen it, um, you can never turn it off. Right, like like once you've been in the security world, you're kind of always a security person. Even if you go on to a job that the primary focus isn't security. And at Bank of um, America, so you, you you didn't go into Bank of America as a security guy, right? No, I did not. <laughs> How? Because that was your first security role. You stumbled into security there by by what? Would you call that luck? Would you call that? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I guess I, I can call it luck, luck in the fact that I didn't get fired. And so the, the, the story for me at Bank of America and how I got on security team was I was actually hired at Bank of America to work on some authentication systems and also work on their PKI. Uh, well, and this is literally the, you know, the problem with acronyms, but I, I was working on their cryptography infrastructure and key management, et cetera. So these are solidly things that, that are quote unquote security related, but maybe not in the way that a lot of people actually think of. But while I was at Bank of America, I found a fairly significant uh, hole inside of Bank of America. And that hole allowed me or, or would allow a person to alter an employee's pay, right? So I, I, I could you know increase my pay, increase everybody's pay. It was hard, it been hard to track. Something that would be rated critical. Critical or high risk, right? Yes, yes. And so I, you know, I took that information and and I told uh, my, my boss at the time, Arjun Iodize, and I also told uh, the CISO of Bank of America. And you know, being a good Boy Scout, I was like, hey, it's my duty to kind of tell everybody that hey, there's a problem here, and it's actually fairly serious and significant. I, I do recognize, and I recognize then, like, yeah, this was kind of maybe my my old teenager uh, habits come, coming to the forefront. And I was ready to, you know, suffer the consequences of that, meaning that, oh, yep, the right thing to do is to tell somebody about this vulnerability, and that could mean that I get fired. But, uh, and this is maybe where the luck comes in, um, instead of firing me, Bank of America decided like, hey, you know what, we should focus more on application security. And how about we add you to, and, you know, create this new application security team. And, and that was my first, like, real, my 100% focus is now just security, trying to actually find security vulnerabilities, trying to actually fix uh, uh, security issues, et cetera. So, so my, my path was, yeah, I started as a software developer, uh, you know, found a bunch of stuff uh, that, that were, you know, I guess issues slash vulnerabilities for the company and the company decided to do the right thing of improving security as opposed to trying to hide the problem and, and get rid of me. Yeah, Bank of America has a lot of um, uh, uh, a very strong, mature security program with uh, traditionally strong leaders there. And that's one of the, I actually, when I moved to Phoenix, Arizona, true story, and I told this to Chris Hoff, I said, I chose my bank, my new bank in Arizona based on the security team at Bank of America. Um, and I think that's a tribute to what you guys built there, you know? 
Oh, and I 100% agree. It was definitely, and I would still argue to say it still is a very innovative organization when it comes to security, and they view that as one of their, you know, effectively competitive advantages. And and because if you can make a secure product, if you can make a secure product, a product that is privacy respecting, you naturally attract more people. Um, part of the reason why like, I, I wanted to join Gusto was to make sure that Gusto could have that same and, and hopefully more. Like when we focus a lot at Gusto of making sure that, you know, these small and medium sized businesses get a lot of those same advantages that maybe a large company has when it comes to things like security. We do view ourselves as being the security team of over 100,000 small businesses because we know how critical that is and that they don't necessarily have the same expertise and that we do have that expertise and we also welcome, you know, helping solve those problems for them. No, that's a big theme on this podcast. Every 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 one of my podcast episodes, we talk about the security tax, where security real security is only available for the rich. Like, and let's let's be real. There's a lot of really amazing security products and technologies that fixes a lot of problems. They're just unaffordable to the average small and medium sized business. And you know, just just I I I get worried when small and medium sized businesses outsource security to others. I understand there's a there's a philosophical discussion there that you really can't handle it on your own. But I also think that people don't understand the risk they take on when they outsource it, and and so there's a little bit of a philosophical distance uh, uh, difference there. But I really do like that companies like yours you know, addressing what I call the security tax that is just so exorbitant and so prohibitive for small companies. I 100% agree with that. Like one of the things that we, we think a lot about is how can we take weight off of the backs of the small and medium-sized businesses? Like if you're running a small and medium-sized business, especially if you're running a small and medium-sized business now during, during COVID, you have so many other concerns. Ideally, security isn't something that, that you have to solve alone. And, and that's where we want to make sure that Gusto is doing our part. Um, I, I love this idea though, just making sure that we can also just democratize security. And what I mean- What does that, that mean? That Please means, explain what I mean. Cause I yeah, hear that yeah, phrase yeah, being uh, used a lot and, and it's used in different yeah. contexts. So what do you mean by democratize security? So, so what I mean by that is almost exactly as you said, like, so for example, if you are a Gusto customer, we don't charge you for two-factor authentication. We don't charge you for a single sign-on. We don't charge you for all these things that a lot of other companies might charge you for. And that's actually one part of democratizing security. Um, another part is kind of, you know, making sure that we're providing all the services on behalf um, of, of the customers for them so that they, you know, like we do a lot of things around like just fraud monitoring, um, monitoring for where, you know, like, hey, does the login look malicious or anomalous or those kind of things, things that companies, they are larger companies, they already have infrastructure for. But if you're a small, medium sized business, you don't have the infrastructure for that. And you don't necessarily have the expertise. Um, part of that democratization is also us being opinionated. Um, and, and providing those opinions to our customers, meaning us making good choices on their behalf in collaboration with them. We do make sure that we, you know, we actually talk to our customers. We do customer studies. Um, we ask them which things are actually working for them. We try to figure out the areas where 
um, we can remove friction, but also figure out the areas where we do need to add intentionality. And what I mean by intentionality is like, yeah, you know, certain changes to somebody's administrative account or their bank account information, that should require a couple of set of extra eyes and those kind of things. Um, so that, that's part of democratization of security to me. The other part is something that, that you probably have heard me talk about a lot, uh, you know, in some of like my, my talks or podcasts, et cetera, is making sure that security is lovable. And I use the word lovable because I think people intrinsically get a warm and fuzzy feeling, meaning that we need to make security more approachable. When you say and that security, you don't want the security guy cannot be the guy who is the guy saying no at all times because now you're oh, you're, you're yeah, mystery. Is yeah. that that what you mean by being lovable and and, and helping folks to understand why? Um, yes, yes. So explaining the why behind decisions, but also trying to find yes. So when we have customers that want to do something different, or we have engineering teams internally that want to do something novel instead of immediately rejecting those things and saying, no, you can't do this because it goes against this NIST standard or we're worried about this threat. Instead, we say, well, hey, let's put our heads together. Let's put on our engineering caps and let's figure out a solution actually, you know, to solve this problem. Um, because security is good risk. for your business, right? I mean, security is a business enabler for you, right? I mean, oh, yes, the more yes, you it, can it, prove, it, the more you can prove this, right? The more it's easier for your salespeople to go sell your product. Exactly, because we want people to be able to trust Gusto as much as possible and not just trust, but be able to actually verify that. And that's the reason why we do things, you know, like like SOC 2, so they have like, you know, a third party attestation. So they're not just taking our word from it, they actually get to see some, you know, agnostic third party also verify that. Um, but it is, it's an enabler and also an accelerator because it means that we can actually do business uh, in some areas that maybe other people can't. Um, we can provide services that other people may not be able to, and we can make a good, delightful experience to our end users in ways that other can't. Um, so when you can have a security team that focuses on finding yes, you also have a security team that can help accelerate the business, business. and provide more business opportunity. It solidly is a competitive advantage to have a security team that is quote unquote lovable. 100%. wants to find more good solutions as opposed to stopping solutions. How much of that leads to you spending too much of your time and cycles communicating security up the chain to your CEO and the board, right? Because now it's become such a business enabler and accelerator that they're turning to you for help with business enabling and business acceleration decisions when your role is to just secure the organization. Is that something that CISOs are starting to take on more on their shoulders around communicating this value of business of security upwards? I think more and more CISOs are, and, and I personally view that as, as a positive thing. Right, because, because it gives before, you a seat at yeah. the table, right? Yeah, yeah, it gets you a seat at the table. It also addresses some of the gaps and concerns that a lot of security teams have. If you want to get funding, the easy way to actually get more funding either for tools or for people is to show the value that security is providing. Um, I'm, I'm quite fortunate at Gusto because the founders directly have bought into security and they've bought into security for the right reasons. And so what that means is that they are proactive in trying to you know, offer additional headcount or additional funding. They help us you know, like, you know, remove barriers even inside the organization because they see security as core and fundamental to the business. And that is one of those things that you know, when we get it right, it helps us 
expand where we can actually offer services and it helps us expand the services that, that we can offer. And it really is it, the, the companies that have really like latched onto this. I still see them as being able to do more. Um, I know that you had Jason Chan on your podcast, for example. And if you think about Netflix, their ability to do that securely is really the secret sauce of Netflix. So hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they can take the super sensitive uh, um, IP that that's movies right and they can deliver that into people's homes and all these untrusted networks and not have piracy and that allows you to actually have a multi-billion dollar business and so you think at like a company like gusto um, by being able to secure uh you know a lot of pii be able to actually move money securely um be able to actually interact with a lot of customers that may not have the same security sophistication as we do that is a competitive advantage and allows us to actually offer the service in a much broader way than a lot of other people can. And that's a real, real value. The, the other great thing is that when you have a, a security team and an organization like Gusto has, is that you also can share slash lift some of the weight off of the rest of your engineering team. So we can centralize a lot of engineering into security in the form of things like, you know, our, our crypto infrastructure, um, data destruction infrastructure, et cetera. And that frees up the developers from not having to focus on that as much. So now they can actually focus more on writing more features because there's a security engineering team behind them taking care of, of parts of the infrastructure. Uh, I, I mean, we can do a whole podcast on that because just the notion of communicating security up to your board and up to your management team is, is, is now emerging among the CISOs as a big, big problem area for them. For them, you know, just it's, it's a communication, it's a communication skill and a communication art that they have not yet mastered. And it's added a new wrinkle to the job that's, that's now emerging into conversations that's really interesting. I don't want to spend too much time boring the audience uh, on it oh no no it, it, it totally is a, something that you could have an entire like series of podcasts on like um you know obviously i think you know phil venables he's actually done a good job actually writing some stuff up uh sam quigley uh from square he was actually my, my old boss and still my mentor he does a phenomenal job of communicating these exact same things and i think there's a lot for the industry to learn from those two individuals and probably more because the more we can educate the board um, the more we can actually educate the rest of the execs, then the more they actually will buy in and, and you can end up in this fortunate position where they start offering you resources that, right, like, right. proactively. Do you worry about like uh, uh, um, posture fatigue though? Because what happens here is that you're trying to communicate metrics and KPIs that are not quite, you know, black and white. They're very, very nuanced. And then you're now you're getting into, do I use a color coded dashboard? Is this the right way to communicate it? And, and even just trying to figure out what these metrics and KPIs are, right? I mean, is there a, and I heard this phrase, posture fatigue, come up when people are just staring at too many dashboards every day. It's, and, and it's just like almost too much visibility. Is that a hiccup for you as well? Um, it de definitely has been a hiccup. I think one of the ways to tackle that is one of the things that, that I've talked about before, this idea of security love languages. Uh, and, and that really is, if you can figure out what the board, what already resonates with the board and how they like to be communicated with, just piggyback on that. There's no need to actually reinvent the wheel. The, the board has a lot more sophistication I, I, than I think a lot of practitioners. You think it's, do you for. think that's changing? You think boards are a lot more informed, a lot more sophisticated, asking a lot more credible questions? Um, I've definitely noticed that. It, it's in particular, um, at some of the companies I've been at where the board members themselves are technologists, 
but you know, just overall, I think board members, uh, one, they're board members for a reason that, that they've definitely have achieved something within their career. Um, but they have a lot more sophistication in general than I think we as an industry have ever given them credit for. So whereas they may not be security experts, they do understand risk. Um, and, and when you can have that same common risk language with them, I've found that there's a lot more success there because they understand how to think about risk. They also understand pattern and trend recognition. And so, yeah, part of your job is always going to be to educate them on, you know, which way the trend should be going and, and what we actually think about the patterns. But once you've done that little bit of education, it really doesn't have to be revisited if you continue to speak to them in a language they already understand. Trying to force a board member to go and look through a bunch of Splunk dashboards, that, that's never going to be successful. Right. Um, but if you can actually show them metrics and things like that that look similar to other product teams inside the organization, other lines of business, they do understand that. And now you're just adding an, an additional flavor onto it. You're adding an additional nomenclature. So you're like, yeah, you can have a board that may not be experts in customer support, but they do understand NPS scores. They understand those kind of things. They understand, you know, so they, they can look at trends holistically. And security isn't that much different. It's another risk, right? So at a board meeting, you're always talking about things like financial risk. You're talking about legal risk. Um, security is just another kind of risk. And as long as we're matching that same kind of language, you know, obviously with some, you know, some uh, supplementary education, uh, I do believe that that's actually a recipe for success. I'm hearing this and you're also hearing this. Uh, boards are a lot more engaged on security conversations than they were two, three, four years ago. And that's driven a lot by the ransomware headlines and a lot of the real business impact, right? Oh, yes, definitely. And, and you know, like I, I remember some of the highlights, you know, having board members ask me, like, what are we doing about Spectre? Or, you know, having board members ask, like, you know, way back in the day, what are you doing about Heartbleed, et cetera? So they are aware. They're not experts, but they are aware. And they're aware that it's something that they need to uh, be concerned about. And they are aware that it's something that they need to hold the company accountable for dealing with and doing a good job of. But the board members are also really good for holding security teams in check, recognizing that part of the job of a security team is to help manage risk, not to eliminate risk. It's all about allowing the company to take the right risk though. Right, uh, we're running out of time and, and, and I feel like we're just skimming over a lot of these topics. So you definitely oh, yeah. have to come back, please. And in the future, you gotta come back so we can dig a little deeper. I'm gonna let you out to here with one last question. You mentioned as part of the John Lee conversation and this responsibility you feel uh, to pay it forward. Uh, what does that What does that look like? How do you, how does that, you know, how does that become a part of your life today? Yeah, so for me, it's a lot about uh, helping to support other young up and coming, you know, minority uh, practitioners, either in engineering, uh, just general startup land or in security, uh, especially. Uh, so that's things like, you know, um, you know, belonging to organizations like DevColor, that is an organization for black, you know, software engineers, um, being a member of ICMCP, the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Practitioners, um, you know, being vocal and public, uh, not just about the technical things that I do, but the philosophy around how I do it, and even, even my journey. Um, being on podcasts such as this, where I'm allowed to actually speak about, you know, what my background is as, as a black software engineer. Um, and also, you know, making sure that I'm there to help mentor uh, other people. And even more so, 
ideally giving other people a platform um, leveraging my voice. So, so for example, you know, you're mentioning, you know, uh, having time on your podcast, like there, there are other people like Charles and Wati, right at Netflix, he'd be a great person to have on this podcast. And he's another, you know, black cybersecurity practitioner. When you think about the, you know, Ron and, and, uh, um, and Chris, Chris right, Cochran yeah. from, yeah, from Hacker, you know, Valley, like that's an, another good, you know, people that you have on your podcast. So using my platform to hopefully elevate others in the same way that John Lee helped elevate me is part of what I try to do. Is it easier for a, for a young black uh, 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 computer engineer interested to navigate this industry today than it was for you in the 1990s? I believe so. Um, one of the big things is that a lot of things uh, are now legal <laughs> that, that weren't legal. Um, and a lot of educational resources are readily available in a way that they just weren't. Uh, so yeah, you know, you do like, you can literally go to the OWASP website, right? And you can find information about, you know, web security. You can uh, go to pen tester labs and you can actually start practicing on, on various techniques. Uh, you, you can go to uh, like, you know, online events and, and things like that and find more resources and you can participate in things like bug bounties, right? So you think about, you know, my life a, a, as a younger kid, effectively, I was a security researcher, uh, yeah. but it just, I was doing it without permission. You can and replace your paper route. Avenue for people to do that. You can replace your paper route to the bug bounty account and actually earn money while learning this stuff. It's, it's real. Yes, yes. And it, it, it's a fascinating thing. There's definitely things I wish that I had when I was younger. Um, I, I, you know, definitely don't, don't want to trade my childhood for anything else. But having that would have been in, an interesting avenue because now it's kind of above water and you get to experiment, you get to learn and you get to ask questions in ways that it was difficult in the 90s uh, because some of those questions could lead to, you know, investigations from various law enforcement. So. Thank you very much, Flea. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your willingness to come and share uh, your your expertise and your uh, and your background with the audience. Please, please come back. We have a lot of things we can talk about. I think there's so much fun uh, to learn from you, and I think you're an inspiring figure that can help a lot of folks understand that there's a path for them here. So, I appreciate you. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It has definitely been an honor. And uh, anytime you want me back, I am more than happy to do so. I'm, I'm always honored. And, and I want to make sure that I'm good friends to people that are good friends to John Lee. Thank you. Thank you, man.